Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 261 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam uh, by myself today. Uh, If you caught our most recent episode, you know that Jill is getting married. So by the time you hear this on Monday, uh, at that point, I do believe she will have gotten married. So if you're listening to this, Jill, happy wedding. Good, Good job. I don't know why you'd be listening to this because you should be enjoying being married and all that jazz. Uh, for everyone else, if you're in the United States, happy Labor Day as this comes out on Monday. And happy Library Card Sign-Up Month, which is what September is. Um, I'm going to assume the majority of people listening to the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by a library company has a library card. But I know we have a lot of listeners all around the place. So if you frequently listen to us for book recommendations but don't frequent your library, first off, thanks for listening, obviously, but go get a library card. Um, If you have a library card, go get one for a son or a daughter or a friend or someone who isn't currently using the library. You know, let's make that our, like, September little uh, random act of kindness. Let's tell one person this month how awesome the library is. Every single one of us who listens to the podcast tells one person how great the library is feel like we can make a really big impact on the amount of people that get library cards this month. So that's that's what I'm tasking you guys with. Just tell one person about the library and how wonderful ebooks are and all that jazz. Uh, speaking of ebooks and the company that I work for, on September 18th, we'll be celebrating Read an Ebook Day, a holiday that I created um, about five years ago. Uh, it's turned into a big global event, which is really fun. If you go to readanebookday.com, you can see a really inspirational video about some of the stuff that uh, we've heard people tell us about ebooks over the years. Um, you can also find our hashtag there, which is ebooklove, all one word. And if you guys use that hashtag on September 18th, you have the ability to win a free device from Overdrive. Uh, we're going to give away a couple Kobo Aura ones thanks to our sister company, Kobo. And if you're a librarian listening in, uh, let your library know to use that hashtag ebooklove because we're also going to, going to be giving away free content credit for our library and school partners. So. Uh, just go online, post a picture on Twitter, or Facebook, Instagram, anywhere that you are on social media. Use that hashtag ebooklove. Uh, post a picture of how you're celebrating the holiday, what your favorite, you know, ebook is. Tell us why you love ebooks. We're gonna pick a couple winners um, that way, which is really exciting. On that day, September 18th, I'm also going to be doing a Reddit AMA. Um, so we're gonna go to Reddit. Dot com, uh, and then the the thread is gonna be our books. I'll make sure that it's all over the place so you guys can find it. If you have any questions, obviously you guys have direct access to Jill and I, but if you have any like larger questions about Overdrive or Libby or digital reading or anything like that, definitely check out our Reddit AMA. Uh, we did one last year, and it was uh, actually one of the like most popular Reddit AMAs, I guess, ever at the time, which is really, really cool. I guess people have a lot of questions and interest, obviously, in uh, digital reading. So um, a lot of fun stuff going on all September. We'll absolutely keep you up to speed. But just to recap, it's Library Card Sign-Up Month. Uh, Read an ebook day is September 18th. Check out our Reddit AMA and go to readanebookday.com for a whole bunch more fun information there. Okay, I think that's all the housekeeping. You can, of course, find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. Love everybody sending us emails at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Um, while I have you here, I, if you enjoy our podcast, I'm just going to give a little bit of a shout out to a couple other podcasts that I absolutely adore. Our friends at the Reading Glasses podcast. I uh, did an incredible interview last week with Travis McElroy, one of the My Brother, My Brother and Me trio, uh, all about uh, video game book tie-ins and his awesome, awesome uh, 
book that him and his brothers and his father just came, uh, came out with a couple weeks ago called There Be Gerblins. That's really awesome. And then our buddy Yin Chang at 88 Cups of Tea um, just routinely has absolutely phenomenal conversations with storytellers and authors. And it's really inspirational if you are a writer, an aspiring writer, or think that you can't be a writer. Uh, it'll it'll change your mind. So just going to check just check out some of those lovely ladies. They're absolutely wonderful. And I adore all of them. Um, so, And I know that sometimes they listen in. So hello, ladies. I enjoy all three of you and all of the conversations you guys have on a weekly basis. So speaking of wonderful ladies, transition, professional, I did it. Um, today's episode is an interview I did back at Book Expo America with Christina Dalcher. She is the creator of the new book coming out this month called Vox, V-O-X. Vox is getting compared to The Handmaid's Tale. Um, It's basically a world where women are only allowed to speak 100 words or less every single day and the implications that that has on society and and a whole bunch of other stuff. We really take a deep dive into it. Um, She is phenomenally eloquent and just was so gracious with her time. She's actually done a lot of work now with us here at Overdrive and a couple other things that we're doing, which is wonderful. Um, she has spent her life in uh, linguistics and neurolinguistics, uh, basically studying languages and all sorts of wonderful stuff. So we get into all of that in the conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Definitely check out Vox. It's getting buzz all over the place. It was, I believe, on lists from bustle and the new york times and i think buzzfeed and the bbc um all sorts of places it's just it's getting all sorts of buzz and it's and you'll see why if you check it out so uh, okay not going to keep you guys any longer thank you for letting me ramble on by myself here again congratulations jill if you're listening to everyone else uh, happy september um, library card sign up month labor day reading ebook day so much going on I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Christina Dalker on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Adam and I am sitting here at Book Expo America and I am excited to be sitting down with Christina Doucher who has spent her life studying and teaching linguistics around the world. She writes incredible flash fiction, which I want to talk about a little bit later. And we're also going to get into her new book, Box, which is receiving rave reviews as a very important book that I think people need to be reading this summer. Uh, We're going to be diving into the creation of that story and, and a whole bunch more. So first off, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here, Adam. And congratulations on the book. The idea of the story is amazing. I, 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 I hear that so much that I'm starting to believe it's really true. <laughs> so for people Thank who you. might not have heard of the book yet or seen any of the buzz, can you maybe give them an introduction to the novel? Yes, absolutely. Uh, without giving too much away, we're, we're living in a, in a dystopia in this book, a very near future dystopia, in which a kind of ultra-conservative faction, a sort of uh, silent majority has become a lot less silent Mm -hmm. (laughs) and a lot more of a majority and started winding back the clock a little bit with respect to women's roles Mm -hmm. in the home and in society. And so we've uh, we've got our protagonist, Dr. Jean McClellan, who is, or was, I should say, 
a cognitive linguist, a neuro-linguist, at work on a cure for a certain type of speech loss, now finds herself in this new world, in this new society, limited with respect to the number of words she can say. And that limit is 100. Uh, and they're monitored with a little bracelet-type device. So I hope that's enough to get you started and give you a taste. Absolutely, yeah. And I think when people see like the blurbs about the story, the initial like shock point or the, the hook that draws people in is like, oh man, what would you do if you could only say 100 words in a day? But I was thinking about this and I actually think I saw a story, I felt very vindicated because I think I saw an interview with you where you kind of said something that I was thinking. It's like, when people think about this, they think about it as the story for themselves. Like, what would I do if I could only speak 100 words? But to me, like the real scary part about this is children and the generations of women beyond that because they don't have like it's so important when you're younger to be learning so I feel like that's the real horror story there Adam I'm going to agree with you actually (laughs) there are I think there are so many different ways that you can look at this book that you can read this book and different readers will take away different aspects Mm -hmm. depending on what they find is salient what you know what really screams out to Mm -hmm. them um So just to put it in context, this 100 words, I know it sounds like a small number, but if we we think about the fact that the average human speaks, the average adult Mm. speaks about 16,000 words a day, and we narrow that down to 100, now we're we're almost talking about nothing. Mm -hmm. So that makes it quite frightening. And And I do think you're right, there are... They're not just limitations on the, you know, on the, on the speech, on, the, on the, uh, the, the language that's used between adults, but also we've got, an, like, like you said, I think the real horror is that these children are not being exposed mm-hmm. to language, by women at least, and right. if we're considering that the women are now the primary caregivers, are the ones staying in the private sphere, and the men are out working in the public right. sphere, then these children are generally going to be cared for and spoken to or not spoken to mm-hmm. by the females who are limited. So they're in, they're, the, the, the input that they're getting is, 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 is severely deprived, right? It's, it's, there's a paucity mm-hmm. of, of input, and, and that's, that's quite frightening. You're right. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> I, I told my wife the, the 16,000 number after I saw that, and she looked at me, and she's like, Adam, I think yours is probably double that. That's, yeah, well, that's fair. I'm a bit long-winded. Obviously, we're talking about averages. averages Everybody yeah. is different. But <laughs> I, the thing that I find interesting in, in, in positing this world, it wouldn't just be the young daughters that are affected to be the, the young sons as well because like you said if the the women are told to go back to the home and they're supposed to be the primary caregivers like the whole thing just feels like it could crumble all of society like it's not going to uh, become a matriarchy it's going to become or a patriarchy rather it's going to be nothing well i think and that we 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 don't necessarily we're not necessarily going quite there but i think there's always that threat right mm-hmm. so We've got a situation now where you're absolutely right. In future generations, if this po- if this restriction goes on, if this persists, then we are in fact looking at this complete de- degrada- degradation yeah. of of, um, of of language. And when you consider that 
language is the thing that makes us human, right? right? We've got two things that separate us from the animals. We've got big brains mm -hmm. and the capacity for language. Right. There is no other species that has the capacity for language, which is, you know, not the same as communication. Right. You said you were a dog owner, so, so you know, you've got a dog. He'll communicate or she'll communicate with you. Right. She'll wag her tail. Mm -hmm. She'll, you know, arf when she needs to go yeah. outside. She'll maybe roll over. Uh, but she does not have language. Yeah. So if you if you consider that the, the linguistic capacity of, of humans in future generations is going to get to a point where it's so degraded, then we kind of have to ask the question, what is it then that is continuing to make us human, to, to keep us human, right? Yeah. And that's the horror. Yeah, it? it's it's more than just opposable thumbs, right. which is what we like to joke with my and, dogs. And actually, there are um, there are animals. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So it's so. Yeah. Oh, and we always say, we always joke about our dogs. One of the two of them, the younger of the two, is very. He has these like human traits about them, and we like to joke with. It's like, if he could speak and open doors for himself, he wouldn't need us at all. It's so independent. It's very funny. Right. <laughs> um, I, when people read this, I, I feel like I, I hope they get a little angry internally about the way that women are are, are being treated, and. I hope it continues to raise people to have kind of a call to action and sort of open their eyes about the things that are admittedly going on in our society today. And I know that novels take a long time to write, but did any of the things going on in kind of the world today affect your, maybe inspire you to want to write this? Okay, so there are a couple of different questions there. Yeah, I... I <laughs> Which is fine. I'll, I'll, take them, I'll take them one at a time. Sure. Uh, the... What the, remind me of the first part of that before we get to yeah. how oh the oh the current situation and the treatment of women in the book right. absolutely well there's there's one of the interesting things I think about particularly about this protagonist is that she's in a very sort of now I gotcha situation uh -huh. right uh, in that she's lost her voice. Precisely because she didn't use it, mm -hmm. right? She did not exercise it, right. and she's and we're reminded of this constantly. Not constantly. I'm not bombarding the reader with <laughs> that preaching, but regularly. Yeah, uh, because Jean, uh, the the main character, she has these flashbacks. She's remembering this old friend of hers, this sort of you know ultra activist, you know uber feminist, and who's constantly, the name is Jackie, the old friend, she's constantly kind of poking at Jean, saying, you know, you should go out, you should march, you should say something, you know, you need to realize that things could change. And, 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 this, and this main character, who's an academic, she's incredibly bright, right. but she's in a bubble. And so the irony is that having not spoken, she ends up being voiceless. Yeah. So there's a sense in which it's it, it, the, it's not only about how bad women how badly women are being treated. It's also kind of a a, a caution or a warning mm -hmm. to say, hey, you know, use it or lose it, right? Folks, right? Yeah. You, know, you, you got this gift, <laughs> and and if you don't use it, it might go away. Yeah. So that's something that's something that I I really hope readers take away. Is and it doesn't really matter. What your politics are, what you think, what you what what's important to you. The important thing is, if something is important to you, value it, treat it as if it's important. Yeah. 
And so I, that's the first part Absolutely, yeah, and, and I think <clears throat> something that interests me a lot about that is that when you look at society today, I think the people that you'll, more, the majority of the people that you'll see protesting and fighting for certain rights are people who are being affected by those things. Like, me as a straight, white, middle-class male, like, to be honest, I, I've hit, like, the quote-unquote jeans jackpot. Like, I, there aren't a lot of things that are taken away from me. And so, but I think books like this are important to show people of all backgrounds and of all sexual orientations and whether you're male, female, or sure. or otherwise, showing them, like, we all need to be fighting for equality and for women's rights and just rights sure. of everybody. I think it's important. Well, and also, we need to get out and vote. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. You know, if I, 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 I won't quote numbers because numbers can be kind of boring in podcasts, but I, <laughs> but all you have to do is go out to Google and, <clears throat> pardon me, and look at percentage of people who vote, yeah. who voted in presidential elections or local elections. And, and here again is the, the problem with Gene. Like, I don't have time to vote. Yeah. Nah, I got to study, uh-huh. right? You know, I've got a PhD dissertation to mm-hmm. write. I don't know, let somebody else vote. Yeah. So, so I think that this is a really big message. Now, as far as your other question about how, what was in, on my mind when I wrote this, yeah. well, I actually wrote it very quickly. Uh, I wrote it in two months. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, <clears throat> you know, it, it is and it isn't. People keep getting shocked. But, but here's the thing. And I was just reminded of this. I saw a, a quote somewhere. It might have been in one of the, one of the uh, show dailies or something or on, on Twitter. Everybody knows who Stephen King is, mm-hmm. right? I'm sure everybody's familiar with his excellent book on writing. Yes. You know, which is sort of half instruction manual, half memoir really brilliant and obviously this man is is so prolific the Uh the empirics speak for themselves here's what Stephen King says about writing a first draft a first draft should take no more than three months so it's interesting to me that everybody's so shocked Mm -hmm. when I tell them that I wrote Vox very quickly but in fact this Stephen King quote is all over the place yeah right so so there is um there is this, you know, this writing fast. Obviously, I'm very lucky in that I write full time, mm-hmm. and so so I do have I do have the time sure. to devote to that. But I also had I had an idea of a, a doomsday scenario, which is where I got the the concept of um, of of aphasia. Not the I didn't come up with the concept of aphasia, <laughs> obviously, but I came up with the with the concept of. Of, in, of language scrambling, yeah. right? And rendering people sort of speechless in a kind of a doomsday sort of mm-hmm. way. So I, I had that. And then I also had a short story that I'd written. Mm-hmm. And that so the writing came very easily. As to why I was so kind of anxious to get it done, well, one, it was just a delight to write this. Uh-huh. And this, remember, this really happened, I, this, this writing happened before the Me Too movement was truly out there right. and had kind of exploded, so that wasn't on my radar. Um, but I, since I work with a very bare-bones outline, I have to, and, and I write linear, linearly, I have to write in order to know what's going to happen next, in mm-hmm. order to know how I'm going to get from 
this scene to that scene, sure. or this this or this very salient point where I need to be uh-huh. to the next turn or the next twist or the next major mm-hmm. event. And so there were there were times when I, I just I'm almost part of the audience. I'm almost yeah. like the reading audience when I'm writing. Like, ooh, what's going to happen yeah. now? And and I, I, there are other authors who are like that. I think um, I think Lee Child has said things things like that. Um, and there were also a few scenes where, particularly involving Jackie, uh, sorry, not Jackie's daughter, Jean's daughter, Sonia, who's only six years old and is now living in this world, which is the only world she knows, mm-hmm. this world where she is not supposed to talk. She gets prizes at school if she doesn't speak, yeah. right? Uh, lowest number of words here. Have an ice cream, little girl. It's crazy. Which it well, it is actually. I mean, I get chills thinking <laughs> about know. it. So, there are times in which, uh, when which this young girl Sonia is in, she's in either I think a, a, a psychologically or a physically dangerous situation. Oh yeah. And so writing those scenes was just, I could not type fast enough. Uh-huh. I, I'm like. I'm sort of living in them. Yeah. Right? I, so it's, it's interesting that you're talking about that. From a, from a craft standpoint, I know that a lot of people will give themselves like a word count or an hour amount of time that they're going to spend. But one of my favorite writing quotes that I think, I believe it was Hemingway talked about, he would end off on the middle of a sentence, like not even in the middle of a paragraph, mm-hmm. like in the middle of a sentence. So when he sat down the next day, he knew where to pick up from. So because you're, you're talking about getting from point A to point B and there being these harrowing scenes that you're writing and kind of learning them as you go. So from a writing standpoint, were you being like, okay, I need to get to what, what many people would think of like as the end of chapter cliffhanger or were you purposely leaving yourself like an, an exciting something to sink your teeth into in the morning? I see what you mean. You know, I, I, do, I do both. And I, 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 knew, I know that quote, I'd forgotten, or not that, that anecdote, I'd forgotten that it was, that it was attributable to, to Hemingway. I may be wrong. But no, no, I, just I think feel you're, like you're it's, probably it, right. Yeah. I mean, everything's attributable to Mostly, Hemingway, right? Yeah. And either apocryphally <laughs> or really. So, you know, when in doubt, yes, Hemingway said <laughs> Hemingway said it, said and, it I'm and, pretty sure. You know, and people will believe you. Yeah. And you'll probably be right. <laughs> so... Uh, there are times when I will stop in mid-scene because, you know, I do have to do other things like cook dinner, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, go for a walk, get some exercise, go grocery shopping. Sure. I have a very patient husband, but I, I still feel a little bit horrible mm-hmm. if I go, oh, right, we've got to just do something else again for dinner because I don't have a clue. So I do break off uh-huh. intentionally. Um, and, and sometimes I remind myself of that breaking off in mid-thought or mm-hmm. mid-paragraph or in mid-sentence just so I can pick that back up. I don't have to start afresh the next, the next time I sit down. However, if a scene is really juicy, mm-hmm. and by juicy I mean either horrific or in the case of a few sex scenes with uh, my Italian um, sort of hero in in uh in in box well those were just so fun to write yeah you know i mean i always loved italian men when i was young uh-huh. and so i you know when i dreamed up lorenzo I thought, okay yeah. this is he great basically molding him out of mental play sort of a thing i that does it makes me really excited to hear that though because i feel like you'll 
I've, I've talked to a number of authors who will tell me they'll, they'll write a, a story and they'll be like admittedly this was very hard for me to write for whatever reason and that doesn't make the book any less interesting or less incredible but to me if an author is as excited as you are about a story it just it like you you exude this excitement about the book and it makes other people want to read it even more and be oh, like okay well if she well. couldn't re- wait to write these stories I can't wait to read them I think well that's well that's a lovely thing to yeah. say first but and I am excited about it you know I, I go back sometimes and I I d- I've done this with my flash fiction as well and and I do it with Vox I, I'll go back and I'll read a little paragraph some there are times in which I really forget where, what space I was in when I was writing a, a, a piece of fiction, either whether, whether it's short or whether it's long. And so I go back and, and I think I've done this, maybe we all do yeah. to a certain extent. Oh my goodness, I did, I did okay there, didn't I? Was that really me? How did I do that? Can I do it again? Uh, so it's, it's fun, to, it's fun to, to, um, to kind of experience that. And I was just so I was so excited about this story. I, I had so much fun with it. I mean, I know that seems shocking because shocking, huh? See what I did yeah. there? <laughs> <laughs> Got to read the book to uh-huh. find out what I mean by that. <laughs> the um, the it, it seems shocking to say that I enjoyed myself while I'm writing what is effectively a horror story. Uh-huh. But I am a fan of dark things. Mm-hmm. We mentioned Stephen King, so that well, that's and, line. and I've yeah, I've been. I mean, I I think I stole a Stephen King book from one of my uncle's bookshelves when uh-huh. I was thirteen. I think it was Salem's Lot, uh-huh. and like, wow. But, you know, first of all, it had vampires in it, yes, which is like great. I mean, anything I'll read anything with vampires. In well, it. and anything. his his <laughs> version of, of vampires in Salem's Lot, I think, is might be my favorite oh it's it's, it's it's a lot of fun so so I do I do enjoy writing these things that terrify people and and I terrified myself mm-hmm. when I was writing box I, mean, I certainly terrified my characters I think that uh, there are instances where where Jean the the protagonist is on the one hand she is irate that here she is this brilliant scientist reduced to not being able to keep up her, her work, which was curing a certain type of language loss, but also she's living in fear for this little six-year-old girl of hers, right? I mean, so, so, so there was so much anger there, but I don't know, there's something about that anger and that fear that made it really, really, I would say enjoyable because you didn't feel like you were forcing anything, it was coming out yeah. naturally. I so you write flash fiction and people who might not be familiar flash fiction is incredibly short stories like sometimes actually and as few as a hundred words or less much like what they're allowed to speak in box and I love reading flash fiction I admittedly like if I need a break while I'm at work I will go find some flash fiction because it's like little little like snacks of stories where you can just kind of sink your teeth into them for a few seconds a few minutes and but because of that as an author who writes flash fiction you have to craft a story that will grab someone and make them think, and you have to do it in a paragraph. Mm-hmm. And so, did yeah. all of your experience with that help with writing a long-form story, but a long-form story that is very <coughs> gripping and immediate? Pardon. Um, 
That's an excellent question. I, I did actually write a longer work before I started writing flash fiction. Uh-huh. It's a completely different novel oh, about three and a half years ago. And, and it also featured a linguist, but very different from, from Vox. And they say generally you should take a break from writing something, you know, once it's out on submission, mm-hmm. you should do something different. So right. I started writing Flash. I really got into it. I was, um, I found a fantastic community of Flash fiction writers on Twitter. I mean, these people have been, I, could, I, could, I wish I could name all of them because <laughs> they have all been so good to me. And I've been, I mean, we've been good to each other, right? Right. Uh, you know, read each other's work, feed off of each other's work, we, we lift each other up when we've been rejected, and so on, and and celebrate each other's successes. So, so yes, so I did write a lot of Flash, and I think one of the things that I noticed when I was reading other, other books is that in some cases, uh, you can pick up a novel, and you read a scene, and it almost stands on its own, right? Some authors do this, and they're very, very good at it. And I like that. Mm-hmm. I think that, that make, it gives the reader a, a little bit of a break, maybe, from this, you know, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, yeah. and you're just, you, you, you can pull people into the scene. And I actually tried that with when I was writing Vox. Normally, I write very linearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, word one to the end, unless... I have an epiphany and I go, okay, I've got to write this scene now. Right. But, but when I, before I even started writing that first word, I did just pick out some scenes that I wanted to write. So I imagined, for instance, early on in the book, uh, there's a scene where, where Jean and her husband are in bed together and they're, you know, getting down to business. And it's really... It's really an odd experience. There's there's no problem here. There's no issue of I don't want to or anything like that. They're yeah. married. They're happily married. Um, but there is this weirdness of making love to someone who you've been with for oh, you know almost twenty years, and not even really being able to say his name or say I love you or say. Oh, honey, that feels so good. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you? It seems weird. I mean, yeah. can you imagine? Now, I mean, I, I, I guess you. Know, I mean, people can make love in all kinds of different ways. Right. But, but I guess that if you just absolutely can't say anything, yeah, that would be odd. And so I put Jean in this position, and I wrote it as a piece of flash fiction. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It's you know not too. Short. It's about a thousand words. And in fact, it worked so well as a standalone scene that with just one tiny tweak, mm-hmm. I was able to use that. I was able to submit it yeah. to, to a flash contest, and I won first prize. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was really delightful to do that. So there's an example of how you can kind yeah. of use the, the, the ability to, or this, 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 this practiced craft of writing something very condensed and sometimes lyrical. Yeah. And insert it into an otherwise commercial novel. Yeah, and it, it, it really, I think it really worked well. So I did it with a couple of other scenes, yeah. and, which I, I don't recall off the top of my head. But the silent sex one was yeah. actually my favorite. To, to me, um, Shirley Jackson's "We Have Always Lived in the Castle," mm-hmm. which is like 
it's to me it's like a flawless piece of writing but well Shirley Jackson is a goddess exactly but I just feel like that the kind of the same thing with you could take each individual scene from that and it's like when she's first walking through the streets and and every single person is either staring at her and giving these dirty looks or internally she thinks they all are and then like that entire scene I could take that and like it gives like I'm getting chills I was talking about the same thing with like when you find out spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read this like when you find out that she's the one who kind of murdered all of her family like that it's all of those pieces and I you're absolutely right like you can remember a novel and a story for the story that it tells but there are so many examples of books out there that you'll say yeah so and so wrote a great story but there was just one scene absolutely I absolutely I absolutely and it might not be it might not be a scene that really takes the whole novel and and tells the novel's story. It might just be one pullout, right. right? That has out of context. You could tell somebody about it, and they might not even recognize what novel it's from. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so that's so it's there's, it's it's nice, and it's also very very refreshing to to finish writing something long mm-hmm. and then relax and go back to flash fiction because. Yeah. You know, when you when you're involved in a longer work, you're on you're in a single genre, mm-hmm. you're the same characters, same voice, especially if you're writing in first person POV with a you know with a single narrator. And wow, what a refre- what a delight it is to, to end that and then go write about an old man sitting on a porch <laughs> in southern Georgia with this like nagging wife and wow his dog saves the day by you know turning into a vampire and getting rid of her Uh um this is like what a you know it's so different (laughs) and it's fun you can experiment um there's one more question i want to ask you about the the book because while people are reading it i want them to realize that some of this came from truth so i we don't get into specifically in the book so people will find out but there is a religious movement that is kind of leading the country in the book and I, I think I saw that's sort of based off an extreme group in America, correct? Yes. Can you talk about a little bit about the real, like, the, I just want people, <clears throat> while they're reading the story, to realize <clears throat> this, there are people <clears throat> out there who have these sorts of beliefs, and I, sure. that part, I think I saw you talking about it, and, and it just fascinated me to know that there are people out there who have beliefs very, like, somewhat adjacent to what happens oh, in Vox. Absolutely. Well... So, this is this is very true. Uh, the, the the pure movement in Vox, which is this movement that has come into power, they've got a lot of support, they've got a lot of money, they've got a lot of influence over a sort of a lame duck president uh, who, who who just effectively got elected because of this movement. Uh-huh. So I based this on I based this on a an, a mid 19th century movement mm-hmm. called known as the culture of domesticity, right? That existed here in the US and in the UK and also shortened to the cult of domesticity, called a few other things. And so if you look back at you know, religious tracts or mag- women's magazines or lots of things back into you know the middle of the of the 
of the 1800s, you'll find that it was often very encouraged for women to stay in the private sphere, that is the home, and for men to stay in the public sphere. And women were expected to be virginal, pious, submissive to their husbands, um, you know, caretakers, feminine, and so on. This was very encouraging. Well, obviously not every woman agreed. There were, and there were right. women, you know, who, who were at the forefront of this. This was not about, this was not a movement of men who were saying, okay, women, this is how you're going to yeah. behave. This was society's idea of this kind of woman, of the, of the, you know, this domestic goddess. Now, of course, not all women agreed with this. Right. right? So, you know, we had people like Mary Wollstonecraft, Shelley, and, and, and quite a few others who were very outspoken. And, and we, we found that different movements, the little, you know, pushing back movements occurred. Sometimes out of necessity, when men went off in, to fight in the Civil War, women had to start doing a right. little bit more work, right? Uh, and then, of course, men came back on and so forth. And we can go on forward. We can, you know, we, we, we certainly know this happened in the in World War II, that, you know, women were, were being employed in factories, yeah. right, all the time. What happened to their jobs when the men came back home, or Johnny marched back home, if you want to go with the song, well, <laughs> uh, well, they went back to the home, and we were back in the, well, then we were in the 1950s, another culture of domesticity, right? right? Yeah. Look at the television shows uh-huh. look at leave it to beaver and father knows best look at the title of the television right shows, yeah. father knows best so so there was this back and forth mm-hmm. right you know culture of domesticity and then there were you know new women and feminine and you know an early sort of feminism and the flappers in the 20s in, in the 20s and then finally in the 60s i think women said okay enough we're done yeah. <laughs> right we're just done and I think that's when the culture of domesticity really ended for good. So one of the things that Fox explores is, could this happen again? Right. Could we go back? Could we have another resurgence of the culture of domesticity? And, And in fact, there are some organizations that exist today which are very um, fundamentalist. Very, they, they, very, they have they have very literal interpretations yeah. of, um, of of certain books <laughs> and ideas. Uh-huh. And one of them, in fact, is women should be in the home. Men should be at work. This is the, you know these they have different places. Right. Women should be feminine and submissive. Yeah. And uh, and pious and all of that. There are people, obviously, who, there are a lot, there are people who believe all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But, yes, it's true that, that there are people who support this kind of thing. Are they a majority? I don't think so. Yeah. But in Vox, they become one. Yeah. And so that is, that is the story, right? That's Absolutely. what happens. So towards the end of our podcast, we like to do what I call the Nerd Nine because I like alliteration. Uh, they're nine lighthearted questions. They're not rapid fire because we get on tangents all the time. So we've stopped calling okay. them rapid fire. Everyone used to yell at us and say, please stop saying those words. It's not rapid fire. So I'll the first focused. one is, um, do you remember the last book you finished reading? Last book I finished reading. 
Um, yes. Or it could be a book you're currently reading. It was, oh, great. Yes, I'm reading, uh, shoot, I'm sorry. I just had a complete you're okay. mental like breakdown. Uh, I'm currently reading uh, The Power. And you get bonus points because I, she literally in real time opened up the Overdrive app to take a look at that. So I'm, I'm just saying that made me very... I get bonus, bonus points. points for Brilliant. that. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite place to read? Uh, well, since I listen to audiobooks a lot, mm-hmm. my favorite place to read is taking a really long walk yes. around my city. Like Good an urban book. Uh, do you remember the book that made you kind of fall in love with reading or maybe the book that made you want to be a writer? Oh, uh, fall in love with reading... Charlotte's Web, yeah, probably, yeah, and uh, you know, an oldie but a goodie, and that was a long time ago. The book that made me want to be a writer is anything that Stephen King ever wrote. Yeah. In fact, I am the sole matriculant in the um, Read Every Word by Stephen King uh-huh. DIY, DIY MFA program. Just so That's you know, my academic incredible. background. Yeah. Uh, when you go to ALA in a couple of weeks, I'm going to have to. You have to stop by our booth because Jill, my co-host. You and her are <laughs> very much like-minded. Uh, what's one place you'd like to travel that you've not yet been to? Oh. Thailand. Yeah, that's a good one. Do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Favorite holiday to celebrate? Oh. Um, Arbor Day. Nice. Arbor Day. You know, it's about trees. You don't have to worry about gifts. You don't have to make any food. You uh-huh. can just go sit under a tree and nature. say... Hi. Yeah. Nice going tree. <laughs> Are you a coffee person or a tea person? Coffee. Black. No sugar. Yeah. You and me. No well, plus, so, do you still live in Italy? Is normally is that? No, I don't. I don't live in Italy. I just okay. spend a lot of time. Oh, okay. In, I was gonna say. Italy, I feel like so you have coffee. access to no, very good coffee. I just. Well, yes, I do because there are no Starbucks in Italy. Yeah. And not that Starbucks is bad. It's just that there aren't any in Italy yeah. yet, which is interesting. Um, I, <clears throat> however, I do enjoy a cafe latte. So yes. my coffee either has to be absolutely black with nothing in it, or it has to be like half hot milk, half coffee, and a ton of sugar. Perfect. It's my yeah. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Mr. Hyde <laughs> coffee thing. Uh, uh, are you a cat person or a dog person? Both. That's okay. I've had both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like cats that act like dogs and dogs that act like cats. You're the second person in a row who has told me that. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> do you have a favorite food? Someone once told me mine was coffee, actually. This is the amount of it I drink. Um, really good French fries will, are, will be just fine. Are you me. a waffle or a crinkle cut? This is not part of our normal nine, but I, I, I'm no, interested in a French no, fry No, no, they've got to be like good French fries, preferably with those potatoes that you can only find in Belgium, right? Oh. Or in the Netherlands. So they'd be frites. They, have, they would be frites. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then last one of these, if you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you pick? You know, I actually have a blog post called My Dead Person's Dinner Party that um, I've taken it down now because I thought thought it was too cheesy. But, you know, I had, unfortunately, I had six people. Okay, dinner with one person, dead or alive. If you have six, you can say six. I'm okay with this. If you want to tell people who the six are. Oh, I don't don't know whether I remember. Oh, okay. Okay, I've got Carl Sagan. I've got Stephen King, Roald Dahl, Ayn Rand, and... 
It's really good. Someone list. else. I, no, I actually invited an evil person because I wanted to have like all the other people, you know, beat the crap out of him. <laughs> so like, you know, Genghis Khan. Uh-huh. So, you know, somebody like, yeah. really bad. Absolutely. That, I, no, I'm just that's teasing okay. about that. That's, uh, that's great. Oh, so last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading Box? I hope that because this is a book about a number of, of things, about Jean's inability to speak, possibly because she didn't speak up when she could. Uh, I hope that resonates with, with readers. And I also hope that looking at not only Jean's inability to, to speak, but also the younger, the, the young daughters, Sonia's, the six-year-old daughters, oh, the, 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 um, this unfortunate, terrifying circumstance that she's in, I hope it makes people really, of the book makes people think about how vital language is to us and how little we think about it. I want to leave you with one tiny linguistic tidbit. It's, this is true. Barring any interference or any kind of cool pathologies, every single child of three or four years old will speak his or her native language perfectly. It's amazing. Right? Grammatically perfectly. Yeah. They really will. They know that language. And because this is something that happens without any schooling, without any formal education, without reading, we don't even think about it. We take it for granted. So, so I would be the happiest linguist or ex-linguist in the world if upon reading Box, you sit back and you go, this is amazing that I can speak and think this language because it's so complicated. We can't even get computers to do it perfectly, but any four-year-old can. So if you think about that, you'll have made my day. That's perfect. Christina, I could watch you give a master class on oh. linguistics and writing and all of this. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I'm just delighted. That's very flattering, and I had a wonderful time. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.